Today we're continuing our sermon series from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and a cursory overview of the Sermon on the Mount is quite enjoyable if you look at it. He says certain things like, hey, if someone uh, hurts you, don't hurt them back. Wait, what? Hey, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Right? Uh, he says things like, um, I know that you've heard that it was said that you should not commit adultery, but hey, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty. And so if you thought that you could slam dunk on a six-foot goal, Jesus comes and cranks it up another notch or two. He doesn't do this just to be complicated. He comes not only corrective, but also to be insightful as to the way of God's kingdom. Because there's a blurry line that happens, um, especially as you read through the Old Covenant, where people get too familiar with the Lord. They, they start thinking themselves as nearly as good as. And what Jesus is doing is spreading that gap, saying, even on your best day on your own, you can't even touch it. And so for the Pharisees and the religious rulers and scribes on one side and the rotten, uh, rebellious sinner Jews on the other side, they're all exposed as being spiritually bankrupt and in need of saving. Or they're made angry and want to kill him. Those are the outcomes, typically, of Jesus' teaching. Either one of repentance and conversion or of anger and persecution. And so we're picking up, uh, Matt Glaze, two weeks ago, a uh, young man, just graduated from seminary, member of our church, did a phenomenal job um, teaching on retaliation. And so I was like, man, that was a tough one. I'm glad I did not pull that straw. Right? And as, as we want to mature as believers, we start thinking, well, hopefully, um, okay, I can, I can get to the point of I'm not just going to directly retaliate, I'll just internally retaliate and hate. If I can't have my retaliation, I'll at least have my hatred. And then Jesus comes and dislodges that next. And remember, this is all based upon a relational context, not a transactional context. We were created by God to relate with God and relate with each other. Sin forces us to a transactional paradigm of relationship. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the laws and the prophecies, to become the ultimate sacrifice, to transact with God on our behalf, so that through the death and resurrection of our King Jesus, we can now rightly relate with God again, and then relate with one another. So only through that lens of salvation and rescue and rebirth are we able to view these passages as liberating words. And I, I want to bring to our attention as well, there, there is this desire, I think, for church people, which I have become. I, I used to be able to make fun of church people been in the church this time than I've been outside of the church because I didn't come to faith until my late teens. And so I was like, you church people. Now I've been in the church longer than I have not been in the church. And so I am that person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like the collective we could use some course correction at times. Um, and so it's less prophetic from the outside. Like I'm a new church per person and really proud of my humility about being new in the church to saying, hey, we got to rethink things. Just remember this, that Christian maturity is not time served. Just because you go to church doesn't necessarily mean you're more mature in the faith. In fact, I've seen the opposite to be true. 
in many cases, including some areas of my own immaturity. I start treating church the way we interact, the way we serve, more for me like a country club than a hospital. And so what can I come, how can I be served, what can I get, what's, what's nice and convenient for me, as opposed to, hey, we're a collection of sinners needing to be redeemed through Christ and to be redeeming agents in the lives of each other. And so the idea of sacrifice, the idea of service, the idea of boundaries, the idea of all these relational contexts become very blurred. And so typically when people come and they say, Pastor, I just want to go deeper, I'm not being fed. Number one, believer, if you've been in the church for a while, you should know how to use a fork, knife, and spoon. And should be able to read and feed yourself. If you're new to the faith, not sure what a Bible is or how to read it or how to study it, use your words. I would like to read the Bible and understand it. I do not know how. Those are manna to a starving pastor's soul. Rather than the music's too loud, the floor's too blue, the screen's too dull, the AC's too loud, it's too soft, it's too hot, it's too cold. Why do you always talk about money? Why don't you talk about money? Why are you asking me to serve? I want to know how to read the Bible and know Jesus more. <laughs> Miracle. In, in corporate world, that's called a perk or a bonus. In ministry, that's called manna, life sustenance, reminder of why we do what we're doing, right? Transformation. So I want to go deeper. Typically, what people mean is I want you to teach me more deep stuff. If we're honest, teach me. I don't want to feed myself. I want you to open wide for the airplane. And then if I don't like what's on the, uh, on the spoon, I spit it out and I go to another airplane hangar or airport called a church. And so we don't, oh, I, I don't like that one. The real path to, towards maturity is actually when we hear the word of God consider it, wrestle with it, and then by some miracle, empowered by the Spirit, actually do what it says. That's how we mature. Until that time, we find ourselves constantly coming back to the milk bottle and complaining that our tummy's not full after 40 years. So, I want to put out this point from this passage. I stole it from Rodney Wu, who is my, uh, one of my favorite professors in seminary. He taught my spiritual formation course, and he said this, the extent to which we love our enemies exposes the maturity of our faith. And I said, the extent to which we are able to, but I don't want to say we are able because really love is a fruit of the Spirit, not something that we conjure up, right? So if you want to know if your faith is maturing, how are you viewing your enemy? And we'll dive into that today. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, I'm going to read through it in, in uh, its completeness, and then we'll tear it down into parts. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, boo, do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we ask as we open your word now that it would do surgery in our heart, that it would force us to confront the reality of our own souls before a holy and perfect God and with gratitude, either for the first time or for the millionth time, place our hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone that by your spirit these things might become true in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your So Jesus is dealing with a misinterpretation and false teaching of the scriptures. In addition to or a speaking to um, something that is not even said in the Bible. But it was a common teaching. In fact, uh, there was a community that lived by the Dead Sea, and they said, love the brothers and hate the outsiders. And so the interpretation is taken as, if they are Jewish, they are your brothers. And then later, if they are of your tribe and Jewish, they are your brothers and sisters. Otherwise, you can hate them. That, that was kind of the deal. And so Jesus, in the same way he's talking about adultery, as he's talking about anger, as he's talking about many different things in this sermon, he's dealing and confronting with misinterpretation of the scriptures. We have several of those. I can think of several. Have you ever heard the scripture that says God helps those who help themselves? Yeah, it's not in the Bible. That's actually opposite of the gospel. God helps those who cannot help themselves because they're spiritually dead. Dead things cannot raise themselves. God does the work through Christ. To him be the glory and honor. Amen. Amen. But we also read the passage that says, well, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Number one, I don't think there were that many boots back then. So sandal laces, maybe there were, maybe the, the, the guards had some, but that's not biblical. Like we've, we've had these teachings that we bring into the church. If you're a good follower of Jesus, you have to vote this way. If you're a good follower of Jesus, you have to spend your money this way or shop here or not shop here. There's all these rules and additions we like to compound onto the Bible to make things up in God's name. I've done that. I mean, I can spin the Lord's will in many different ways, but it doesn't mean that it's biblical. And so as you're new in the faith, you're going to break stuff and do stuff wrong, say wrong things, believe wrong things. And as you mature, all of a sudden, as God in his kindness breeds this humility before God, then we start caring more about what God sees and cares about, seeing things the way that he sees them as opposed to the way we want to. And so no longer is Jesus advocating that um, your neighbor is a fellow Jew and you must lo love your own people. In fact, that's not even what their scriptures teach, and that's our scriptures too. In Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, you, this is where they're taking this and saying, well, see, it talks about your neighbor and your brother. That's it. Everything else. And so they're, they're, they're interpreting from silence. 
Except in that very same chapter, if you just go up a smidge, in verses 9 and 10, it talks about the Jewish people were not permitted to fully wipe out their vineyards, but were meant to leave some of the grapes and some of the harvest for the poor and the sojourner. The sojourner was someone who was not of their faith passing through their land. So their interpretation from their own scripture, out of context, was, well, it doesn't say specifically I have to love people outside. And then Jesus loves to come and, as he typically does, roll a grenade on the whole neighbor thing when he talks about the half-breed dogs of Samaritans, when he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a man, a Jewish man, was injured and left for dead, and um, his own people walked by and just ignored him, and the Samaritan came, a half-breed, a dog. Samaritans were half-Jewish, half-Assyrian, and uh, so they're mixed-bred, which is a big no-no. Um, and, and that person took care of the Jewish person, paid for his recovery and everything else, teaching that, hey, all humans are your neighbor. Ow. So not just the same race. Racism isn't a new issue. It's compounded and it's emphasized, but it's not new at all. This isn't like, well, in the advent of the last couple hundred, no, no. Since the advent of different races, there has been racism. It's sin, it's wicked, it's awful, it needs to be owned in our own heart, acknowledged. It's not new. And so this idea of neighbor is expanding. He's saying, hey, I'm actually telling you, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But actually, verse 44 and 45, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies. Let's talk about love. Many people love love. Love it. They love falling in love. They love being in love. They change their lives when they fall out of love. If they feel love, if they don't feel love. Love, in a biblical sense, isn't merely emotion. And in fact, a lot of love in the Bible happens absent of any emotion. And when people take a step forward in biblical agape, selfless love, emotion tends to follow. So love is more of a proactivity, a verb, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, which our brother Elijah read for us during our scripture reading today, is a famous love passage. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time I read this passage while performing a wedding, I would be several dollars in. Plural dollars. It's actually a very hard passage. Oh, you say you love. Well, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy, doesn't get jealous, doesn't boast, it's not braggart. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I quit. I want the warm fuzzies. I want it self-serving. I want the threshold of emotion that comes with it. I'm a feeler, people. I want to feel in love. 
And he's saying, okay, <laughs> fine. Feel love towards your enemies. Feel it for, I mean, I don't know. It's like, I'm out. But really what he's saying is do love to your enemies. In the context of God and who we are before God and the equality of sin amongst us before a holy and perfect God and our inequality with God, do love. Still feels impossible, and quite honestly, friends, here's a secret. It is without the power of the Spirit of God in the context of the love of God expressed through the death of the Son of God, Jesus. Impossible. You ever been fighting with your spouse who feels very much like your enemy, and all of a sudden you're able to somehow consider their position? And then even utter the phrase, which is a phrase, which is like taking a death pill at times. I'm sorry. Loving our enemies. John Stott puts it this way. The truth is that evil men should be the object simultaneously of our love and our hatred. As they are simultaneously of God's, although his hatred is expressed as wrath, to love them is ardently to desire that they will repent and believe and so be saved. To hate them is to desire with equal ardor that if they stubbornly refuse to repent and believe, they will incur God's judgment. Here's the challenge. There is such thing as perfect hatred. The Bible calls it wrath. It's God sentiment and proactivity towards sin it's ongoing jesus teaching these things knew of god's wrath and later would become an object of it on our behalf so he's coming with authority to speak on the context of love versus hatred to love your enemies and john starts this way so in the same way that there is a righteous anger which is very rarely experienced by common human beings such as you and I. We're like, well, Jesus flipped over tables and made a whip of ropes and did things. He was mad. He was God and able to do so perfectly. Maybe once or twice in our lives do we purely and righteously enter into anger. Maybe a little more than that. There's things to be angry at. But what we do with that anger and how we acknowledge that anger is once we hold on to and keep it to ourselves, guess what? It ferments into hatred and bitterness and death. Poison. And so what business does Jesus have telling us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? But for, for you get excited. When you get excited, brother, I get excited. And I'm already excited. I want the rest of you all to be excited. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus has been betrayed by his disciples, handed over by his own people to be killed because they say he's a blasphemer and claiming to be the king. 
um, he's been beaten, sped upon, and cursed at, and scourged, which is taking a cat of nine tails with pieces of bone and, and clay glass type things, scratched and torn, ripping his back muscles to prepare him to suffocate on a cross. As they are nailing him to this cross, he utters this prayer, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They are murdering him. I think they know what they're doing. Now, to be fair, they are following orders. But from the context of the story, it seems to be that they're taking liberties and enjoying it. So not sadly through tears putting him to death, they are joyfully enjoying, and he still says, Father, they don't get it. Guess what? People who do not yet know Jesus do not see the world as we do. And quite honestly, a lot of us still see the world more like they do than what the Scripture teaches. And so the, uh, the ability to, 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 to position ourselves in love and in grace and in prayer towards our enemies is one of supernatural power that enables us and empowers us to walk closely with God as our Lord Jesus was going through the act of being executed, prayed that they might be delivered. The economy of righteousness that Jesus has been dealing in isn't that of, I'm more righteous than you, you're more righteous than me. It's God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. That the only way to become righteous is to become like God, as pure as God, which is impossible without hoping in the only one who has, who is God, Jesus Christ. So without that context, this is jibber-jabber. In that context, we can still see like, man, cool goal, not quite there yet. Might need some more maturing. More growth, more, more, more of the Lord, more spirit, more obedience. It's this idea of changing the paradigm of such self-preserved self-righteousness to understanding the consequence of being exposed to the holiness and righteousness and exposed in our own unrighteousness compared to him. That in that exposure, we realize that we truly are bankrupt and in need. And only through God's perfect path, his son, are we even hopeful or able to be rescued and to be saved and to be forgiven and to be born again. So this idea of Loving my enemy and persecuting and praying for those who persecute me isn't just something we muster. It comes from proximity. As we walk with and remain near to the Lord, as we confess our own shortcomings, the first step to loving our enemies is admitting that we don't. And that we don't want to. That we do believe, but God help us in our unbelief. I hear a lot about church hurt. I've had church hurt. I'm certain I've caused church hurt. How do I know that? Because I'm human and so are you. People hurt each other. It's just that we now have an on-ramp to get us back on in relationship because of the grace of God through Christ. And that when we see comparatively 
of the wounds that Jesus took on our own behalf, we can then properly realign ourselves to knock down a smidge or two what we believe we deserve. That's not an overnight thing. You're not going to walk out of here like, I love all my enemies. I have arrived. Most of us think loving our enemies means that we don't have to obsess on them as much or think about them as much, that we're no longer praying the imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms, for those of you like me, I, I went to seminary and I still had to look it up a few years ago. When someone said, well, in the imprecatory psalms, I'm like, words are hard. I had to look it up. It's basically cursing psalms where the psalmist is saying, God smote my enemies, God do these type things. Again, in the perfect hatred, in the old covenant, God was at war against idols. It was an idolatry war that God's people, in the inspiration of the Spirit, was articulating God's hatred towards idolaters in the Spirit, which Christ has come and taken that hatred and wrath upon himself so that we might actually be liberated to pursue living out the great commission of while going as you go, go and make disciples. This is complex, deep stuff in a few verses. It's not something that you just wake up tomorrow and be like, I love them. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. If you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he has a, a modern classic called The Cost of Discipleship. If, you, if you're hungry for more conviction, go check it out. But he puts it this way. This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer... We go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Just a heads up. Obedience in something like this far precedes the emotion. Obedience in a situation like these often precedes, comes before the emotion. I will say from experience, it is tougher to maintain a hard heart towards those who have wronged me, whether real or perceived, if I'm able to come alongside of them as a fellow sinner in need of profound mercy, which by God's grace I have received, and ask for the same thing for them. Now, there are people I do not have relationship because trust has been broken, and it may be wiser to not engage with. There may be folks in the next decade, by God's grace, there's reconciliation. But overall, the economy, the accounting for wrongs suffered becomes a different layer altogether. It's, just, it's, it's a different balance sheet, the way we think through it and process it for our own good. So that... He says, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus praying for those persecuting him. Jesus loving those who hated him. Was a direct correlation and proof the fact that he was his Father's son. We claim to be followers of Christ. And you might think, well, this passage right here was real hard. It gets worse. 
He says, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? We've talked about the tax collectors. Even those of you today know that tax collectors are kind of a bummer. Back then, they were the Jewish people, when he said that, was like, oh my gosh, my own people working for the Roman government, ripping me off, because what they would do is they'd have a set quota that they have to pass up the line, and they could keep whatever extra they, they did, so they were price gouging their own people. They were hating them. And he's saying, hey, you're just like the tax collector if you love those who are lovable. What power is that? People that you're supposed to love, you love it. Well, whoop-de-doo. Jesus didn't say that. That was my, my addition. That's not in the Greek. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the non-believers, the pagans, don't they do the same thing? Jesus is speaking of common grace. It's an expression of the goodness of God. It's in every favor falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath, the mitigation of our own sin natures, natural events that lead to prosperity, and all gifts that human use and enjoy, they use and enjoy naturally. It's a common grace to all peoples. And so he's not even saying, go do something I don't do. He's saying, be like your Father in heaven who shows love patience, provision, kindness, remember the First Corinthians 13, 4-7, that he shows to a world that are his enemies. So the Father leads out that way. And if, you, if you love those who are lovable, where's the power? If you love those who just love you first, Where's the power? I mean, First John writes, for, for God is love. And it's not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, sent his son to become an object of his wrath as a sacrifice, as a substitute, so that we might have and know God. Love is proactive. It's sacrificial. It's bringing kindness when there's condemnation. When we want to pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to ask, how am I engaging with my enemies? And then Jesus really comes and puts a, a period on this. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he goes and raises the bar substantially to where all in the hearing hear this and hopefully say, how can I do this on my own? Hopefully the Pharisees, by God's grace and mercy through his son, which we see some did come to faith and many did not, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, being perfect um, is not something you accomplish on your own. And then when you're proud of you had a really good day, you're already not being perfect because of pride. And so it's this idea of pursuit and direction more than it is position and accomplishment. 
It's more of being directed towards and pursuit of being more like Christ, being more like our Father in heaven, learning from his attributes and by his power having these supernatural moments. I've worked with teenagers um, on and off since I pretty much was one. Um, when I came to faith when I was 17, that following summer I started speaking to teenagers. The following summer after that when I was 18, I was a youth intern. And I love teenagers because they, haven't, they lie to their parents, but they're honest to most other people. And so, like, like, as a youth pastor, like, so do you have to tell my parents everything I say to you? And I do the, you know, obligation, like, if, if you've been harmed, you're being harmed, harmed someone, I kind of go through the gamut of what I have to tell, like, okay, good, this is what's going on. And they'll tell me everything. And I'm like, you really ought to let your parents know that's happening. You know, and then mom and dad come and try to squeeze me, like, hey, what did Bobby tell you? And I'm like, you should talk to Bobby. But I love when kids read passages like this to me and say, so you're telling me, Casey, I'm supposed to love Saddam Hussein. And I said, why don't we start with your little brother? They're like, oh. That might, be, that might be like level 10. What about your spouse when they feel like they're your enemy? Or your child when you're in opposition? Or the person who cuts you off in traffic, or the coworker who frustrates you, or the competitor who cheats and steals to get ahead. How are you praying for them? How are you coming alongside your fellow brother and sister in Christ that you do not see things the same way and praying for them? And that your prayers aren't selfishly motivated. They might come to believe the right way like you do, but rather that God might provide them with mercy and grace that you have received and towards being able to have more helpful conversations. So let's start there. I mean, remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer saying and writing these things was in a concentration camp and arrested because he was working with a team to try to assassinate Hitler. So someone who could straddle the tension of mercy and justice, I would say he was heading that direction. However, I think most of us just, oh, that's for something else. You want to go deeper with the Lord? You want to know the Lord more? Sure, read more books, listen to more talks, go to more events, that's fine. But if you're not doing these basic steps of obedience, all of that's for naught. It's like several years ago, I put myself on a diet, and I was drinking a whole bunch of protein shakes. Problem, they were highly caloric, and I was not working out. And I did not change any of my other parts of my diet. I did do as the protein promised and gained weight. But I did not experience bodily transformation. And a lot of Christians are chubby bunnies when it comes to theology. But they haven't been working with what they've been given. It's a both and. I'm all about content. I'm all about learning and studying and growing. But hey... Um, some of y'all might need to go for run spiritually. Some of you might need to rest spiritually. Some of you might need to make that next step of faith and might need to step out of a phrase that's saving I hate, the comfort zone. Not that it's not true, it just, it's overly used. It's my comfort zone. Oh. The problem is the last two years during the pandemic, I've felt permission to shrink back into my comfort zone. I've gotten weirder and less spiritually mature the last couple years. 
I've gotten, like, I've taken some steps back that in some ways I've matured and grown, but it's like, we're weirder now, friends. We're stranger. We don't really know how to, you know, interact. We'll say nice things in someone's face and then send them a text or an email, like an after blast, because we forget how to have face-to-face conflict, and we won't, like, say, like, hey, let's, let's explore this with the intent of figuring out maybe how I was wrong in my understanding and reconciling and moving forward towards understanding. We just don't do that. We leave. A lot of that is an outcome of the way we've been forced or chosen to interact the last couple of years, self-preservation, right? I'm not pointing fingers or politicizing or taking a side. I'm just saying I'm weirder now in some ways than I was a couple years ago because I was able to use different things to position myself in more comfortable ways. We are comfort-seeking beings. Even those of you that are adrenaline junkies, go out there and try to hurt yourself by jumping off stuff or from stuff or out of stuff, you're still trying to seek comfort through adrenaline. Right? So understanding, like, you don't hate that person on the other side of the political aisle. And if you do, you're sinning. Pray for them. Pray for yourself. We, I mean... Can we start thinking as fellow humans, rehumanizing people, of slowing down enough to say, what must have been going on in them? What must their story be like? Some of you are like, well, that's a slippery slope to liberalism or conservative. No, 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 no. Just so you know, extremism, extreme conservatism, and extreme liberalism are often very much similar in the energy and anger and passion and drive just have different bullet points. And if we're our political or racial or territorial, and I love being a Texan, I brag about it a lot, but if all those things come before being owned by Christ, we are idolaters and need to repent. The way we view people as friend or foe, as friend or enemy, needs to be realigned in the gospel as human beings, sinners, in need of a savior. Saints who still struggle with sin. I'll leave you with this thought. You might be thinking like, I hate my enemies. Well, fortunately, God doesn't hate his. Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, by what? So how did Jesus make us right with himself? Or how did God make us right? The Father make us right with himself? By the death of his own son. For his enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We might live into the salvation that we have been gifted by following in the steps of our King Jesus. This is a process. This is a plea, this is a prayer, this is a repentance, that we're not there yet. But this is where the trails are dug through this constant battle. We were all enemies of God, but God took his wrath out on his own son, rose him from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan, so that he is both just and justifier. Praise be to God.
The extent to which we love our enemies exposes the maturity of our own faith. Help us, Jesus. Let's pray.